Welcome to Trifecta Now, Living A Course in Miracles. This is season five, and it's called The Book Club. We're on chapter 19. Welcome back. So many people ask me about peace. How is it obtained through the holy instant? The holy instant is a peaceful place where you can reside. It's a place you go to in your mind and try to maintain that space as long as possible. Once you practice it daily, eventually you'll just be there. Life will try to pull you out of that space, but you will send it away and maintain that peace. That is when you know the holy instant has been reached. I live in it every day. There are times when life gets chaotic and I get a, I feel a pull, I get pulled out, but I allow myself to acknowledge that that's what's happening and then I let it go. I hold on to nothing. I let go of everything. Sometimes I struggle for a day or so, but that is usually to work out through a, work out a problem with someone else, then let it go. Honestly, it's easier than you think. The problem may be for you is that you think. If your brain is constantly processing and analyzing, that was me for decades, then you are not allowing the moment in. You are blocking your peace. Today, we will begin chapter 19, the attainment of peace. I'll cover the following sections, healing and faith, sin versus error, the unreality of sin, and I may cover the obstacles of peace. The obstacles of peace is a large piece. So I'm going to look at the time. I may end up ending it at the unreality of sin. I'll let you know. And then um, we'll pick up the obstacles to peace in two weeks time. We'll see. So let's begin. So in my book, chapter 19 is on page 398. The first section is called Healing and Faith, paragraph one. We said before that when a situation has been dedicated wholly to truth, peace is inevitable. Its attainment is in the criterion by which the wholeness of the dedication can be safely assumed. Yet we also said that peace without faith will never be attained. For what is dedicated to truth as its only goal is brought to truth by faith. This faith encompasses everyone involved, for only thus the situation is perceived as meaningful and as whole. And everyone must be involved in it, or else your faith is limited and your dedication incomplete. So basically, that's just saying that in order to, I mean, obtaining peace is inevitable. You can get it if you want it. But the only way to get it is to believe in it. You have to have faith, right? You have to have faith that it actually exists. Paragraph two says, every situation properly perceived becomes an opportunity to heal the son of God. And he is healed because you offered faith to him, giving him the Holy Spirit and releasing him from every demand your ego would make of him. Thus do you see him free. And in this vision does the Holy Spirit share. And since he shares it, he has given it. And so he heals through you. It is this joining him in a united purpose that makes this purpose real. Because you make, a, because you make it whole, and this is healing. The body is healed because you came without it and joined the mind in which all healing rests. The body cannot heal because it cannot make itself sick. It needs no healing. 
Its health or sickness depends entirely on how the mind perceives it and the purpose that the mind would use for it. Paragraph four at the bottom says, do not overlook our earlier statement that faithlessness leads straight to illusions. For faithlessness is the perception of a brother as a body and the body cannot be used for purposes of union. If then you see your brother as a body, you have established a condition in which uniting with him becomes impossible. Your faithfulness, next, or sorry, faithlessness, next page 399, to him has separated you from him and kept you both apart from being healed. Paragraph five says, it cannot be difficult to realize that faith must be the opposite of faithlessness. Yet the difference in how they operate is less apparent though it follows direct follows directly from the fundamental differences in what they are. Faithlessness would always limit and attack. Faith would remove all limitations and make whole. Paragraph six, a little bit further down says this. The inevitable compromise is the belief that the body must be healed and not the mind. For this divided goal has been given both an equal reality, which could be possible only if the mind is limited to the body and divided into little parts of seemingly wholeness, but without connection. This will not harm the body, but it will keep the delusional thought system in the mind. Here then is healing needed. And it is here that healing is. For God gave healing not part apart from sickness, nor established remedy where sickness cannot be. They are together, and when they are seen together, all attempts to keep them, keep both truth and illusion in your mind, where both must be, are recognized as dedication to illusion, and given up when brought to truth, and seen as totally unreconcilable with truth in any respect or in any way. Paragraph 7 says, truth and illusion have no connection. This will remain forever true, however much you seek to connect them but illusions are always connected, as is truth. Each is united, a complete thought system, but totally disconnected to each other. And to perceive this is to recognize where separation is and where it, next page, which is page 400, must be healed. On page 400, paragraph nine says, to have faith is to heal. It is a sign that you have accepted the atonement for yourself and would therefore share it. By faith, you offer the gift of freedom from the past, which you received. You do not use anything your brother has done before to condemn him now. You freely choose to overlook his errors, looking past all barriers between yourself and him and seeing them as one. And in that one, you see your faith in, is fully justified. There is no justification for faithlessness, but faith is always justified. So it's interesting. This paragraph just reminds me of what I said. I opened it up with saying that you have to overlook everything. In order to fix problems, you have to let them go. You let them go and you watch how quickly other people's will, people will let them go. The investment becomes an investment in the whole. But if you're not part of that, then that, then that investment is gone for the other person as well. So think about that. Paragraph 10, faith is the opposite of fear as much as a part of love as fear is of attack. 
Faith is the acknowledgement of union. It is the gracious acknowledgement of everyone as a son of your most loving father, loved by him like you, and therefore loved by you as yourself. Paragraph 11 uh, near the bottom says, faith is the gift of God through him whom God has given you. So that's the Holy Spirit. Faithlessness looks upon the son of God and judges him unworthy of forgiveness. But through the eyes of faith, the son of God is seen already forgiven, free of all the guilt he laid upon himself. Faith sees him only now because it looks not in the past to judge him, but would see in him only what it would see in you. It sees not through the body's eyes, nor looks to bodies for its justification. Next page, page 401, paragraph 13. Grace is not given to a body, but to a mind. And the mind that receives it looks instantly beyond the body and sees the holy place where it is healed. Paragraph 13 at 17, Nope, I'm skipping 16, paragraph 16 at the bottom of page 401 says this, let then your dedication to the eternal and learn, sorry, let then your dedication be to the eternal and learn how not to interfere with it and make it slave to time. For what you think you do to the eternal, you do to you, whom God created as his son is slave to nothing. Being Lord of all, along with his creator, you can enslave a body, but an idea is free, incapable of, incapable of being. Next page, page 402. Kept in prison or limited in any way except by the mind that thought it. For it remains joined at its source, which is its jailer or its liberator, according to which it chooses as its purpose for itself. Hmm. So that section is the first section of 19, which is called healing and faith. So really, really clear message that the body doesn't control the mind. The mind controls the body. Everything that you need to solve exists in your mind, nowhere else. From the um, lack of love that you feel is self from the pain, from the anxiety, from the anxiousness, from anything that you're feeling, it comes within. Other people can trigger it, but they are not the source. The source is you. You have to figure that out. Sin versus error, page 402, starts with paragraph one. It is essential that error is not confused with sin, and it is this distinction that makes salvation possible, for error can be corrected and the wrong made right. But sin, where it possible, would be irreversible. S sentence six, a little bit further down, says sin calls for punishment as error calls for correction. And the belief that punishment is correction is clearly insane. <laughs> Paragraph three, the son of God can be mistaken. He can deceive himself. He can even turn the power of his mind against himself, but he cannot sin. Did you hear me? He cannot sin. There is nothing he can do that would really change his reality in any way, nor make him really guilty. So here's the thing, nothing he can do that can change his reality in any way. We're not talking about the reality. This book is not talking about the reality that you think you live in. It's talking about the reality of the eternal essence 
of what you truly are, not of who you think you are here, but what you truly are in eternity. That is what sin would do, for such is its purpose. Yet for all the wildly, sorry, wild insanity, picking my own words here, inherent in the world, in the whole idea of sin, it is impossible. For the wages of sin is death. And how can the immortal die? We don't die, so we can't be sinners. Next page, page 403. Paragraph six says, it can indeed be said that ego made its world on sin. Sentence five says, for sin has changed creation from an idea of God to an ideal the ego wants, a world it rules made up of bodies, mindless and capable of complete corruption and decay. If this is a mistake, it can be undone easily by truth. Sentence 12 near the bottom says, it is impossible to have faith in sin for sin is faithlessness. Yet it is possible to have faith that a mistake can be corrected. Paragraph seven says, there is no stone at all the ego's embattled citadel that is more heavily defended than the idea that sin is real the natural expression of what the Son of God has made himself to be and what he is. To the ego, this is no mistake, for this is its reality. This is the truth from which escape will always be impossible. This is his past, his present, and his future. For he has somehow managed to corrupt his father and change his mind completely. Mourn then the death of God, whom sin has killed. And this would be the ego's wish, which is its madness it believes it has accomplished. Paragraph eight says, would you rather that all this be nothing more than a mistake? Entirely correctable and so easily escaped from that its whole correction is like walking through a mist into the sun. For that is all it is. Next page. That was sin versus error. I actually really found this um, liberating when I first read this book, the first time I read it, because I knew there was no such thing with sin. I remember as I grew up as a Catholic girl, uh, going to church every Sunday, and you know we had confession. It's called reconciliation now. It was called confession back then. And we'd have to go, I remember as a seven-year-old, even a six-year-old, seven, eight-year-old going to confession and confessing my sins. <laughs> what sins would a seven-year-old have? And that's, I think when I knew it was ridiculous <laughs> was when it was seven. And also having a man, you know, a, a priest in this case, absolve me of those sins. You know, there's only one person who, and he doesn't even absolve us of sins. He works with us to find the path that we've chosen, and that is our creator. So uh, this was a big awakening for me reading that this section for the first time, sin versus error. So now we're on the unreality of sin. So back to trying to really hit it home that sin isn't real. I'll jump to paragraph three, which says, on page 404, which says, an error, on the other hand, is not attractive. What you can see clearly as a mistake, you want corrected. 
Sometimes the sin can be repeated over and over with obviously distressing results, but without the loss of its appeal. And suddenly you change its status from a sin to a mistake. Now you will not repeat it. You will merely stop and let it go unless the guilt remains. For then, for them, no, it's then, you will be changed. You will but change the form of sin, granting that it was an error by keeping it uncorrectable. This is not really a change in your perception, for it is sin that calls for punishment, not error. The Holy Spirit cannot punish sin. Mistakes are recognized and would correct them all as God entrusted him to do. But sin he knows not nor can he recognize mistakes that cannot be corrected. For a mistake that cannot be corrected is meaningless to him. Mistakes are for correction, and they call for nothing else. What calls for punishment must call for nothing. Every mistake must be a call for love. What then is sin? What could it be but a mistake you would keep hidden? A call for help that you would keep unheard and thus unanswered, question mark. Paragraph five says, in time, the Holy Spirit clearly sees the Son of God can make mistakes. And this you share, on this you share his vision. Yet you do not share his next page recognition of the differences or the difference between time and eternity. And when correction is completed, time is eternity. And the Holy Spirit can teach you how to look on time differently and see beyond it. But not while you believe in sin. An error, yes. In error, yes. For this can be corrected by the mind. Paragraph 7. 6. Sorry, paragraph 6. When you are, I'm scratching my nose while I talk to you and it's just, it's a distractor to me. So I apologize for that. Six, when you are tempted to believe that sin is real, remember this. If sin is real, both God and you are not. If creation is extension, the creator must have extended himself and it is impossible that what is part of him is totally unlike the rest. Paragraph seven says, while you believe that your reality or your brother's is bound by a body, you will believe in sin. Paragraph eight near the bottom says, if sin is real, it must forever be beyond the hope of healing for there would be a power beyond God's capable, beyond God's, beyond God's capable of making another will that could attack his will and overcome it and give his son a will apart from his and stronger. And each part of God's fragmented creation would have a different will opposed to his and an eternal opposition to him and to each other. Your holy relationship has as its purpose. Now the goal of proving this as impossible is impossible. So basically what that's saying is that if sin was possible, then God could, we couldn't be part of God because that would make God a sinner. And then if God's a sinner, then what are we doing here? What would be the purpose? So we are part of him. He is part of us. He's extended himself to us. We are part of, we are his creation. And in 
And in return, we create. And if we were sinners, we wouldn't be able to do that. Next page, page 406, paragraph 10 says, in the holy instant, you will see the smile of heaven shining on both you and your brother, and you will shine upon him in glad acknowledgement of the grace that has been given you, for sin will not prevail against a union heaven has smiled upon. Paragraph 11, look upon your Redeemer and behold what he would show you in your brother. And let not sin arise again to blind your eyes, for sin would keep you separate from him. But your Redeemer would have you look upon your brother as yourself. Your relationship is now a temple of healing, a place where all the weary ones can come and rest. Here is the rest that waits for all after the journey and is brought nearer to all by your relationship. That is the end of that section. Oh my God, sorry. <coughs> a little tickle. Um, interestingly, when I read this last part of um, the unreality of sin, that look upon your Redeemer, that's uh, paragraph 11, and behold what he would show you in your brother and let not sin arise again to blind your eyes. This is reminding us that, you know, that ye who throw the first stone, that we have to remember, not only do we, are we not sinners, but neither are our brothers and sisters. They don't sin either. Yes, they make mistakes. They make errors just like we do. But in that humble belief that God is love and we are the essence of love, we have to believe they are too. Because if we don't, then we have lost the connection to God because he's connected to them. This is a package deal, whether you want to believe that or not, or whether you want it or not. It's a package deal. And unless you accept the package, everyone being exactly the same, you'll remain lost. You'll remain feeling separate and apart and afraid because you won't understand that unless you let that go, you aren't part of the whole. Okay. Obstacles to peace. Let's look at the time. Um, obstacles to peace. There are many obstacles to peace. And I am thinking that I am going to stop here. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the obstacles to peace, I actually did a whole workshop on the obstacles to peace, a whole half day workshop on it. And it was incredible. And I'd like to give you the opportunity, my listeners, the opportunity to hear a little bit of that. And then I can cover this section really well and help you to understand why you can't obtain peace. What is holding peace back from you? And this section of the book, and I, I encourage you strongly to read it, is a big piece and really breaks it down as to what the obstacles are and what we do to keep peace out. So we will cover that in two weeks time. And that's the only section I'll do then. Um, and it actually ends, the obstacles to peace ends chapter 19 and that will send us off to chapter 20 as well. Okay, so uh, we will begin, we won't begin chapter 20 next week. We'll begin, we'll finish up chapter 19 and we'll be doing the obstacles to peace. My online book club on Wednesday evenings uh, takes like a taste, look at this, takes place at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If anyone is interested in joining, please email me. There's no cost. 
Thanks for listening. I can be contacted by email at any time at trifectanow3 at gmail.com. If you'd like to ask a question, share a comment, say hello, get a link to the web um, to my uh, Zoom so that you can join me in the evenings for the book club, that would be great. Keep sharing the love. And remember, this is our journey. Let us together find our way. Live in this moment. It's the only one that truly matters. Always love, Denise.